Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome back, Beef Bits Podcast listeners. After taking a couple months away to get caught up on some writing and some grant work, we're bringing you some new material and new content. We hope that the time we were away that you've been able to get caught up on all the previous Beef Bits episodes and found them useful. As we move forward, we may have a few episodes that are a little different, maybe more timely topic, current news, new research that's been published, and uh, not have uh, maybe a guest on for those, but uh, hopefully you'll find that new format interesting and useful as well. As always, we look forward to any feedback that you have, and thanks again for listening to the Beef Bits podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Jeff Lemkuler, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Josh Jackson. Josh, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. So, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, you, you come from kind of a, a farm background, animal science background. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I was originally grew up, born and raised in Mercer County. Grew up on a, a small registered Angus farm and then slowly built the herd from there. And uh, started out with just 35 acres and expanded to now I think we have a little over 200 acres. And then, uh, you know, came here at the university for animal science. At some point, uh, switched over to ag engineering, but then still held, held that interest. And then from there, went to working on trying to address some of the issues, you know, that I could through technology from an engineering standpoint for, for the livestock industry. And, and so um, as you begin thinking about technologies, you know, technology can be pretty wide open door when we think about it from <laughs> shoot vaccines and dewormers to even yep. simple things like an ear tag. And, and so, you know, I, I, I make the joke sometimes I want the the cows to be more gadgeted up than uh, Darth Vader. So <laughs> that's my, <laughs> but, you know, and, and sometimes we do record data for data, but, but really we're trying to help, you know, producers make technical decisions. So, you know, when I first started here, I actually started off doing some, uh, some work with some, uh, near field communication, so NFC, near field, near field communication tag. So pretty much it was like a tap and pay for your phone that you use when you tap and pay. But the kind of that same technology, you put on put the information onto a tag that way. And so what I was trying to do with that was if you get a, a cheap $50 cell phone at that point, uh, it had a- Android typically, and then we could use that to kind of tap and get information off the cow's tag and put information on the, to the cow's tag. So I get either 150 bytes or up to 999 bytes. So that was one of the initial products I had. It was just kind of initial um, dipping my toe and just seeing some interest. And from a lot of producers, they said, oh, I have to get too close to actually use that. So, you know, you know, sometimes it becomes a practical challenge. Right. And, you know, and sometimes we we think, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think people would be surprised at the number of human errors we have in record keeping. Oh, oh yeah. And and trying to find ways for record keeping, keeping track of vaccinations. Uh, you know, we could even put GPS locations of the last known location you've recorded that tag. Uh, there, so there's, there's a lot of opportunities. I think, you know, there are a lot of errors and I think a lot of errors which we gloss over because it's, it's so difficult to do the record keeping. 
And I, you know, I'm really big on we need to focus upon that and, and try to see where we can optimize our operation because it's not, you know, that the price that we get is generally fixed that we get for our calves. And so really I tell producers it's, it's an ability to save money is where you can. And that, that comes to, that comes through management. That's right. And they, we, we don't necessarily always think about it, but um, we enjoy being outside feeding hay, maybe uh, not so much in the mud, but in the wintertime when it's nice and looking at calves and that, but to, to strap us into an office for four or five hours to do records, it's not, most of us don't enjoy that. And, and it's, you know, if we can automate as much as possible and, and try to because um, that's the problem. You ha we have Excel, we have different programs, but then you have to replicate data. You're inputting data multiple times. And so a lot of it's you're just to some degree spinning your wheels. So it's really being efficient about the time, efficient about utilization of resources and, and trying to, you know, we're, we're still working on trying to get good tools for management because that, that, it's just a challenge to, right. to do it. And, and so a lot of, you know, I myself and you, a lot of other producers, we work off the farm. So you're getting that a little bit of time you know, to do the hay, you have to do, you have, there's tax that you have to do. They have to get hay. They have to have water. And then when it comes by the time you get to the management side, it might be nine, 10 o'clock at night and thinking, eh, ball game just went off. I'm going to be done for the day. <laughs> so it, it, it comes down to some discipline, but it, it's, uh, it, it's worth it in my mind. That's right. So, so you started off on the, on the tag side and um, now what, uh, what's been some additional kind of areas of interest that you've had you did some i thought which was some really neat things too even on the scale side trying to find load bars for cheaper alternatives to, to collect data so we can manage better and, and so that that's a low cost and that was kind of the point of the nfc tax trying to find low cost solutions so low cost solutions for producers because there's always ways to spend more money spend you know that was, that was my 50 dollars phone as opposed to a thousand dollar magic wand i always said that uh, not somewhat sarcastically, but you know, it, it's, it's true. You know, if we can find ways to save money and do the same thing, that that's where I'd like to, to focus my efforts. And so one of those was a low cost scale. So we built a low cost platform scale and, and demonstrated that for producers, but then also try and find ways you can um, put that underneath your existing chute. And so a lot of it, if you have an animal restrained, then maybe they're not moving around as much. So if you have the alley scale, they can um, be a little more, feisty on you to put it put it frankly and so if you get them in the chute lock them down you have the load cells underneath that it's a lot it's a lot more control than you get a better weight weight on them, i think and and so just looking at solutions like and that that one is very simple it was very straightforward you got an off-the-shelf kit you got some c channel and you just had to do a little bit of welding and so making your own load cell platform and going from there and, and we're talking difference, you know, load bars typically in a, in a scale head to, to go is probably what, $3,000, $4,000. Easily. You know, I, I go to, this is, I've gone to, I've, I spent, we just had the National Farm Machinery Show here. And I, I went a couple of years ago and looked every, anywhere that had a scale or weight display. I was there and it was easily $2,500 across the board. And so just trying to find a way. And this is, uh, I think last time I checked the load cells and display were about $300. And then the C channel, it's, it's not going to be as what it was, but um, you get some four inch, five inch C channel underneath the chute there, and you can have yourself a fairly resilient system. Um, and, you know, there's going to be, you have to do a little bit of calibration yourself to calibrate in the zero, but, you know, it's, it's not a bad process. I just take mineral bags and calibrate my scale. So it's not going to be official scale for 
buying and selling of animals, but it gives you a good approximation of what is there. And so that helps you make some good management decisions. And so for that, you know, we've, we've also looked at it from a standpoint of kind of getting some cow weights and calf weights and then just doing a, a scatter plot comparison, just seeing who's a big cow, small calf, uh, small cow, small calf. And, and we, we've just gotten a, not a decision. It's kind of a decision tool, but it's just a visualization of, oh, these are big cows producing below average calves. We need to keep an eye on them. Because, you know, in my mind, you know, I, I have very well fed animals and some might say over conditioned. But uh, I, I try to ensure that, you know, we're utilizing our resources effectively. But um, if I do have a big cow that's got that small calf and I got a heifer, if I make a match decision, I got a heifer who may be smaller, but she's producing a larger calf. It makes me really consider a di- the choice between those two animals if I have to make some calling decisions. Absolutely. And it's important also to kind of see what your genetic decisions on replacement bulls and that may be having on those heifers you're keeping back. Are they over time getting taller, heavier, et cetera? Yeah. And, and, and we, we try to keep as much as that. We look over time, we'll weigh them. A lot of the heifers we will keep will weigh them throughout the year. And so I, I generally have, if they're not uh, three or 400 pounds of weaning, if they're not 400 pounds, I'm really considering them not being a replacement heifer. I mean, they're, they're not, they don't have the growth potential for my herd potentially. And, and so we really are just using that to help us make those management decisions because they're bought and sold and treated on a per weight basis. And, you know, Draxon and, and some of the other ones, they can be, it's fairly fairly expensive. You know, I think it's $5 per hundred weight. There, there, it was $5 per hundred weight. And so we just really want to make sure we're judiciously using it. And we need to make sure that we get the correct dose that we're not underdosing and the drugs aren't as effective as what they should be. Yep. And so if they, yeah, if they were underdosed, then I'm, I've, you know, could, could lose the animal because they're not getting exactly what they need. So there's, that's kind of along the lines of the old saying, it's difficult to manage what you don't measure is kind of your approach, really. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've looked, it it really is. And I've looked at it from a standpoint of like wormer, uh, like the wormer, if I assume all my calves are 550 and I hit exactly on the nail, I may, I'll use the same amount. If I'm actually measured out and get all the weights and calculate correctly and give every animal what they need, if I just assume 550 across the board, Yes, on average, I will use about the same as I would have otherwise. However, I'm making sure each animal gets exactly what they need for their weight. And yeah. so that's that's where it comes down to. It's like I'm spending the same amount of money, but I'm utilizing those resources more effectively so they can they can they can work effectively. So what when we think about technology, I mean scales are there and then the ear tags, I mean, those are kind of two drastically different technologies. Um what other technologies have you been working with that beef cattle guys and, and gals may think about um, in the maybe not near future, but potentially in even near future or even distance future that they might be able to use as management tools? So, you know, one of them being the big one, you know, we worked with for a number of years has been uh, drones. Just getting drones to go out there and find cattle, you know, potentially look for problems and inspect fence lines. Because when we have the the storm events going through, going out there inspecting fence lines, you can talk to Clint Corals. He'll he'll tell you all about you know why we need to keep our animals in and how it's our it's our responsibility and our liability. So having something that can go out there you know after an event and quickly scan or quickly visualize uh, your your perimeter your boundary 
and even your interior fences can be a huge, huge time savings um, and, and potential tool for you to utilize. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, several years ago, we had a, an ag lawyer come to one of the stalker association conferences and he was talking about fencing laws and uh, he made the comment that, you know, you, you really do need to have documentation that you've actually inspected your perimeter fences because if an animal gets out on the road and it gets hit and causes significant injury or maybe even worse death, um, not having that log that you have actually checked your perimeter fence is probably not going to stand up in court. And so having a drone that has a route that they it could fly and check things is pretty simple to do, right? Yep. It's pretty simple because we just set up, uh, I've done it both ways. There's two ways you can set up waypoints. So I, I've, but I've, what I actually prefer is set up waypoints on a digital map of my perimeter and then, then fly that. But I actually prefer, I can fly and record a path. So I can fly, record my path, and then that kind of sets me up exactly where I want to be from the power lines and the trees and other, any other obstacles that I may, I may be on the map, digital map, that I just can't visualize uh, as easily. And so I, I fly and record my path. And then once I get done, you know, I can save that, adjust the speed, distance, and, and different parameters as needed. And so if there is an obstacle, I can set up where I fly over the power line a certain number of distance or fly a certain amount of distance away from it. And so generally when I have obstacles in a field, I try to fly at least 20, 20 feet away from any tree lines and power lines just because there's going to be some GPS drift that can occur. And so that, that puts me within that buffer of 5, 10, up to 20 feet for that GPS drift that can occur. So when we look at this technology that's out there and available today, what kind of uh, initial cost, upfront cost are we kind of looking at? <laughs> I always tell people it's uh, it's similar to a pickup truck. You can spend what you want. You can be cost effective and get your old clunker or get you a clunker, or you can you know get the Cadillac King King Ranch Deluxe model with leather seats. You know there there's always it's however much you want to spend. But for practical purposes, I tell people it's around anywhere from four hundred to two hundred dollars. And you don't really want to go too cheap. Below four hundred dollars, you get to the some that are um, and they're going to be, you become a better pilot as opposed to looking at and looking at analyzing your cows and fence lines. So it's, it's you learning how to fly as opposed to um, doing tasks that you need to perform. And so really you're paying for some of that uh, technological knowledge to hover, hover, return to home. Some of those basic features are really important in my mind. So if you if you do get a drone, you know, You'd want to have at least those features. And then the speed, you know, how fast can you go around the field and, and the amount of flight time that you have. So those, those are some important considerations, you know, just, just looking at it initially. Yeah, I think folks need to look at that. I, I dabbled in the drones a little bit on the race drone side and uh, realized that I didn't have reactions fast enough to be able to not crash those things. But uh, <laughs> so I've got a bunch of drones at home that uh, can, can go pretty fast. But they, you know, the downside on those type of things is, you're looking at three minute flight time, four minute flight time. And so that's the other thing is if they go too cheap, then they're yep. probably not going to have something that can actually do the tasks that they need to do. And, and so, you know, some of the, the flight time, you know, generally I, I try to recommend drones that have about a 20 minute flight time, 10 minute flight time. And so when we're flying those perimeter fences. We're flying them up, uh, over the cattle. You know, we're going at least 10 miles an hour because then you can record that video of that fence line. 
And if it's electric fence, I've even flown some electric fence lines where uh, the easiest way to visualize those, because it's still somewhat difficult to see from the drone, is I make sure to put plenty of flags on the fence. So if there is an issue, I can go out there fly. If the flags aren't in the place, I can, I can see that even from the drone. And, you know, I'll fly, you know, depending on how much you, you want to fly, how fast you want to fly, I'll fly anywhere 50 to 30 feet above ground level. That's a great idea. You know, um, I used to always use a little bit of flagging tape just to, to help visualize electric fence for the cattle so that they could kind of associate that, oh, there's something there, but never even thought about that to be able to use it with the drone technology. Yeah, it, it, it really helps. And we have a lot of uh, deer problems in November. So I have one field where I just I flag it all the way up and I want to make sure every day uh, that, that it's it's functional. Yeah. And that's how I got one of my first uh, six pointers was I, I got up wrapped up in my electric fence wire. I took it all on a ball and went and fell in the pond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that wasn't a cheap one then anyways. It was, it wasn't, well, it wasn't what I really wanted to happen. I wouldn't mind if he got away. It's just, uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, you know, I've, I've seen some videos on, on, um, out there and that, but how did the cattle respond to having the drone fly over them? So, you know, that was one of our main uh, research questions as well, because we came in there seeing, like, we knew that was video was taking place on YouTube. We knew that people were going to try to move cattle with drones, RC trucks, whatever it may be. And so we thought we need to get ahead of this. And so we've been doing this for the past uh, three years, and, you know, actually analyzing how do they respond. And so part of it was we fitted some of the cows. We had a couple of different pastures fed the cows up with uh, GPS collars. And then we also had uh, some low cost GPS collars. And then we also had heart rate monitors. So similar to what you'd have for when you, if you go and work out a polar equip and a little heart rate monitor, we use that same thing. They have a, a much larger belt version for equine. So we use that for cattle. Uh, went in there, trimmed their heart girth uh, all the way around seemed to be the best way to do it. And then got plenty of good contact, put some aloe on it and were able to put the cattle on pasture let them acclimate to the pasture and then went out there and flew amongst them. And so the first year we did it, we flew uh, a set of uh, two-year-old heifers and a set of yearling heifers. And in either case, we were flying just a single drone at 30 feet above ground level. There was no change in heart rate, no change in location. And well, let, me, let me back up. The year before that, we'd also done looking at the location. We put the GPS collars on some dairy cows out on pasture or dairy heifers and yeah they, they didn't respond to a drone at all but i told people that's that's kind of cheating because they're dairy animals and they're used to a lot more handling than they are with uh the beef animals so i wanted something to be representative of what we actually want to do in the field so uh, what would be available for the producers across the state and so we worked with some angus angus crossbred heifers you know the, the following years and so the first year like i said we did those two groups and the second year, we actually got a little more uh, detailed in which we flew multiple drones. So we flew two drones out there. And so, and there's there's reasons for that, and I'll go into it a little later, but we flew two drones and we did our circle flight patterns, did a different approach style flight patterns and saw how those responded. And so with that, you know, this, we were flying, um, approaching, so we're approaching at the cows from the front and the back, you know, with, with the drones. And then we also had another flight pattern where we did a circle around them as well, trying to see how they would respond. And so in either case, uh, that initial week, we saw an increase in our, in our heart rate. We saw an increase 
and our movement rate, a significant increase in movement rate. And then we also would see uh, what we call fleeing behavior. So they would uh, have exhibit avoidant behavior where they take off running from the drone. And so, but by that fourth week, we're out there flying in, in each one of those fields. They were, they were, they were, there was no change in heart rate, you know, pre and post flight. And there was no change in movement rate. So, you know, the animals over that four week period had become acclimated and we're still flying at that point about 30 feet above ground level to the, to the presence of those two drones. So the two drones were actually flying a similar height, but we're actually able to get that increased response. That's interesting that they, they will acclimate um, that quickly. I would have thought that it would have taken much longer. So we, we were flying um, over a three-day period each week. And each, let's see, we we're flying twice a day. Well, first day we flew once, second day we flew twice, and then third day we flew once, weather permitting. And so we had about four flights per week. So we're exhibiting, you know, we're trying to simulate what could be real-world scenarios, flying in the evenings and flying in the mornings. Because when, when you'd actually potentially be able to look at those animals. So flying early mornings, you know, maybe you send a drone out there before you go leave for work. And at, at night, or we did it towards the afternoon, but, uh, you know, eventually the goal would be flying at night. So can you, can you, um, I mean, with these drones today that they uh, come with the opportunities to have, um, you know, some kind of night vision camera or, I mean, yep. how, yeah. There is, there is uh, options and there are ones available and it's, uh, that gets back to however much you want to spend you get there's are there are options for infrared and so we we've used a drone at least twice you know we can locate cows that you know escape but it's it's a lot harder we tried to locate a calf in alfalfa and we visually just visually and we could not locate it just from the visual camera because it was in that it was in the alfalfa i was like well we it'll find mama eventually but uh you know our goal would be to you know i think in the coming years look at some of the infrared uh, technologies to try to also locate them. If they're in the trees, if there is foliage, that's definitely going to block our ability to see these animals. And so that that's something we're trying to figure out because that's that's a lot of Central Kentucky, East Kentucky, and West, parts of West Kentucky. You know, that's where they go into the tree lines during the, the heat of the day, or even potentially at night, still in the tree lines. So being able to monitor them across the farm is our goal. And so having some of that technology in there is one of our goals, but we're primarily looking at, you know, just at this stage, what is their physiological and behavioral response to it? So that's, um, you know, what other applications do you see um, the technology, the drone technology have? And are we, are we to the point too, where we might be able to start using it for pasture forage monitoring and some of those things? So, you know, that, that's some work, you know, uh, Dr. Dvorak, Joe Dvorak and myself and Michael Sama, um, and others have worked on some of that for alfalfa, and I think it, it will transfer to forages where we can actually fly the fields. And this, we can take just pictures, I'm going to record that GPS data. So we're just taking pictures, GPS data, and we're able through different programs to stitch that images together. And then from our, our surface of our ground, we're able to interpolate how much um, forage material is there. And so how tall of our crop is, and so it's a, a structure for motion or, or they photogrammetry uh, is what they typically call it. And so we're, we're recreating a 3D surface from all those two-dimensional pictures that we've taken. And That's so pretty we're, cool. 
when we're flying the drone, it's recording the GPS, it's recording the camera angle, all those things. We go and we fly, do a couple of passes around the edge of the field at different angles to help us create that 3D structure. And so when we did this work with alfalfa, uh, we were able to get the, you know, we estimate the forage height and then take that back to forage quality. Uh, we're able to get like a 0.6 correlation between our forage height and forage quality. And then it actually goes up if we include more um, variables, if we're able to go out there and kind of just get a, a spot check of our pest pressure and some other factors, we can actually increase, increase that to 0.8. Wow, that's impressive. And so, it, and there, there's just a whole lot, and, and there's other, other aspects to it. So we're just looking at the visual spectrum in this case. And then we also talked a little bit about infrared, and that gives us some information near infrared. If we want to use multi-spectral, and we do have the ability here to do some of the hyperspectral work. So really classifying a lot of it, you know, wavelengths we can't see from 400 to about 1,000 nanometers and looking at that. And so really getting a detailed analysis of what's taking place in the field. So, we're, you know, that, that would be if we're trying to determine pest pressure, uh, weed pressure. And we, we thought about, uh, we, we've done this before, and we, we're trying to figure out a good way to do it, but looking at uh, buttercup. And so at some point I was like, we can figure out how much yellow there is in an image and figure out how much buttercup problems we had. But then we, we kind of got to the point where it was like, well, if you have to ask the question, I think we already know the answer. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> and usually I believe our forage agronomy folks will say by the time you see yellow, it's too late. It's too late. And so we, we got to the point where you, there are a practical concerns. So it's like, oh, we can determine how much yellow there is. And we thought about doing the same for brome sage, but it's like, well, you can also drive by the field and see that there's brome sage. And I can tell you how much brome sage there is, but until you get out there with some lime and potassium and fertilizer and soil samples, you won't know exactly what to do. But you'll know that, you know, there's a, either way, I was like, you know, there's a problem. So yeah. we can quantify how much of a problem you have, but that doesn't actually solve it, you know. <laughs> so, so where do you plan to take this uh, interest in the future? Um, you know, there, there's still a lot more areas I think we need to explore. So I think one of them being herding. So we we saw with the multiple drones and different approach styles. So while they had acclimated to it, if we drop the drones to about 15 feet, we're able to relatively consistently move the animals uh, down a fence line. And so, you know, this is work that was done with, so this is part of the USDA grant done with uh, Michael Sama, Jesse Hogue over mechanical engineering and uh, Ru Gang Yang, who, who was an electrical and computer computer science. So, um, you know, getting the animals to be pushed. And then it's like part of what Jesse was doing was our uh, control formation. So we see a lot of these drone light shows and drone, you know, where they can make pretty images and pictures. However, when you have an animal that's moving dynamically and unpredictably to some degree, you know, considering it's a 3D environment, uh, it's a lot more challenging for those drones to respond in kind. And so figuring out exactly where those drones need to be, how much pressure they need to put on, on them would be one of our goals to figure out how do we best utilize these as a tool? Because we know people, you know, we can watch YouTube videos of people chasing cows with the drone, you know, that, that initial exposure, you know, how much can we, you know, encourage that movement? So we haven't done any work with, you know, flags or sounds yet. And so they've done some of this work uh, with sheep, as we started doing some of this work with sheep I think maybe two years ago or so. 
And so I think there's some opportunities for us to maybe utilize both sound and, you know, visual cues to help determine and push these animals as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the drones, we talked about flags and that, but I mean, a, a drone could potentially have something lightweight behind it too that would be more visual cue. Yeah, it carries a big inflatable border collie or something. They had the sheep study had the, kind of the dog barking sound, that same um, sound. And, we, and that's something we also measured as well. So like the sound pressure levels of the cows on the ground. So their collars, you know, their GPS collars had cell phones in there were recording sounds, recording um, exactly how much sound pressure we're getting from those those drones as well. So it's not going to be a whole lot of, of sound. Uh, you know, trying to figure out exactly what's stimulating them is just, yeah, uh, it's still a, it's still a open question. Well, that's interesting. So if we move, we move past drones, then, um, what other kind of technology work have you been playing with here lately? Uh, a little bit is, uh, so it kind of gets back to the scale a little bit. And so it's just automating other tasks. So uh, other tasks, so getting the dewormer and so. The calculation for that and i was like well if we had a simple pump if we have we know the cow's weight so that's easy enough we know the cow's weight we get a simple pump and so we just turn it on and off and that'll control our flow how much flow we can get and so communicating that back to um just a little microcontroller and using that to autonomously dose the animals and so that's, that's you know uh, you know i saw one you know we've I've been playing around with this for a couple of years in, in my mind and I built one a couple of years ago, but uh, trying to just refine it over time, but there, there's nothing to it. Cause it'd just be a pump, just be kind of like the scale. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a couple of load cells, a bar and a display. There's nothing to it. And so that same concept, you know, trying to find a low cost option. Cause there's, there's ones that want you to again, spend $2,000 plus for that type of system. I was like, well, I could, I could probably get it for a uh, hundred bucks. Wow. And, and so I was like, well, the pump will go out, but it's a $20 pump I get off of eBay. And so as long as I get that calibrated, make sure a couple of pumps, you know, give you the same flow characteristics. You know, there's nothing, nothing to making that work uh, effectively. And, and so just trying to find little, it's little things in life, you know, little ways I can save producers time or money. Um, and, you know, I'm always looking for other ideas. And, you know, if any of your, Viewers want to contact me or, or listeners, I mean, want to contact me. I'm always trying to th find other, other ideas and senior design projects. So we we did a, a senior design project a couple of years ago. We actually, uh, this was for the dairy, but we were trying to find ways to minimize the water usage. And so the cows could selectively, selectively go out there and get sprayed instead of just having the water sprayed on the line every five minutes. They could go out there and selectively get sprayed and we can record who's getting sprayed with the RFID, how much they're getting sprayed, and, and try to control those characteristics. Interesting. That, that's another project we were trying to, we did a couple of years ago, set it to the side and came back to it and it wasn't working. So we're trying to get that going again. Um, and so we can maybe potentially, you know, if we want to selectively spray animals or they want to voluntarily cool themselves, that could be an option for them. So getting them trained, so that, that might be a goal for this summer um, is doing some work with that. Uh, so I got the, let's see, uh, the dewormer, the sprayer, and you know, just trying to figure out, again, we, we still, Morgan and I still you know, trying to get individuals to help us do some RFID, RFID work, but also 
I want to do some work with our water systems, alternative water systems for producers, um, well pump, whatever it may be. And then get that kind of display and cost, cost analysis for producers. Because a lot of time producers go in there saying, I'm going to get a solar pump and pump water and do this. And I start pushing some numbers like, well, your, your pump's going to be about, you know, and really what limits us is flow rate and the amount of power. It's like we can, or then do you want to have, to have it work over wintertime? And they say, yes, yeah, and then our costs usually balloon to it's easily two grand on a pump. And then I'm spending, you know, potentially spending a little more on those solar panels. And so I'm like, look at our cost compared to city water. I can look at over time and, and see which one's going to be more beneficial. And yeah. so some it's just practical concerns. And it, it gets even more challenging as you get into steeper terrain. And I mean, that's trying to push water uphill is not easy. Yep. And that delta H and that pressure head. It, it, and that's that's part of that calculation. Like, well, the higher you want to go, that's probably the more you're limiting our potential flow rate. And we can calculate that adjust pipe size, inch and a half. And so there's ways to do it. But at some point, there's only so much water we can pump with that type of system. And so then it becomes like, do you need a reservoir? You have to have some kind of fail safe because the one thing you don't want to happen is cows to be without water. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of times, like, what is your fail safe? <laughs> have you have you played around any? There's um, the the I don't know what you want to call it, the virtual fencing and some of those technologies that are coming out a little bit. Have, have you followed any of that and played I, with any of that? I've been I've been following that to a certain degree. You know, I, I've really you know they they've said it's been a year away, past six years now, or <laughs> so so it seems. And I think they talk to, I keep talking to the guys at Gallagher and and trying to get them to say, come on, we got to get this cow monitor going. But uh, yeah, I think there is some potential there for some opportunities. Um, I think the, um, the drones could potentially help with that if you have like almost a barrier of drones or barrier of, uh, you know, you're, you're just kind of creating that visual barrier. So if you have maybe the drones going back and forth across this this invisible line when a cow gets in with a certain proximity. I've thought about trying to achieve it that way. If we are able to induce movement at 15 feet above ground level, let's just fly at eight back and forth a couple of drones that they seem to be afraid of. And then it's not going to be perfect, similar to the virtual callers. But I think it could be a, a system to augment or help with that. Um, but yeah, I do think the virtual will be great for here in Kentucky because a lot of the I tell producers, if you get a really good boundary fence, then maybe the interior fences, that could save a lot of you know, $2 a foot potentially on interior fences. So there would be a lot of potential, I think, for here in Kentucky to do rotational grazing. And it might not be, it depends on the GPS accuracy of those units. You know, we'll say, we'll say, give them benefit of the doubt, five, five feet a radius uh, for the accuracy. But if that was true, you know, it would still allow for a lot of rotational grazing to take place and, and then minimized time by the management. And so I, I can see where a lot of producers would take strongly to it. Right. And so I've thought about, you know, we thought about making our own or trying to do our own, but, you know, really it's just the, the battery power becomes an issue and getting that good solar power. And I think they were trying to have a little solar panel on top, you know, gives you a little bit, does it give you enough? And that's the, that's the question. Yeah, and I think the other the other aspect is um, uh, for us, we, we do have a lot of woods and that, and what's the signal issue going to be, and then getting it caught on things and torn off. And... <laughs> yeah, we 
I, I can, uh, if I can tell you for a fact that that signal quality definitely degrades majorly because we, when we go from, you know, center of the pasture, I, I can have maybe a, a, a four meter, let's say four, 95% of my points for a quarter points will fall within about four meter radius. However, when you get to the tree line, that becomes a 22 meter radius. Oh, wow. If I'm with in trees with foliage, in trees with foliage, it can it can really diminish that GPS quality. So then 95% of my points are within 22 meters. So that's that's huge. That's a and, five fold increase. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just really you get you know open fields, bioelectric fence, you're generally fine, uh, but you get close to that tree line and it just falls off the map. So and that's a lot of producers here in Kentucky have those trees along the boundary fences, fence lines. And so it's going to be a challenge, I think. Yeah. But I think, I think even with that, there's still opportunities. That's yeah. And that's, that might be one of those things too, where we're, if we know, like you said, with um, some of the drones, if we know we're getting close to some of those kind of obstacles that we change, how that is, that, that region is going to be interpreted so that, um, you know, the, the way those, kind of warnings will go off on the on the collars it's it's going to make an adjustment for where their location is right and if they get close to an area maybe we send the drones out send some other management strategy or if we know it's close to fence line or close to a tree line we go ahead and put a little electric fence or something there to help just assist in that management yeah and, and so you know I, I see that you know I, i'd really like to have something like that to test out for a couple of years but uh, i don't see that being on farm as of yet yeah, uh, that's good. That's good to input. I mean, it's just important too to understand that a lot of times we have technology that's that's maybe close to implementation, but we also have technology that's, like I said when we started, maybe a little bit out there yet, and it's going to be a few years till it's refined. And so that that's a good example of one of those that it may be a few more years. And you know, some of the uh, stuff that Les is working on, I think, with the beef manager, I think. In my mind, too, that could be something where, you know, we talk about the location of the antenna and different aspects. Well, maybe we just instead of having that, we just fly the drone twice a day. And so we could then it's not in a fixed location. We can rotate pastures easier, potentially. And we're, we're flying out there, visually looking at them. But we're also, you know, we have to have a bigger drone, but we'd have to also be looking at our animals anyway. But then right. we have that information. And, then, well. and that drone then can carry the receiver across them and collect that tag data. And then, yep. Yeah. Great. And, yeah. That's a great, great thought. Well, Josh, what else? Uh, have you been doing anything else? We're, we're getting close to about out of time, but is there anything oh. else that you've been doing that's pretty cool that you want to share? Uh, I'm trying to think here. Well, you know, we're still doing some uh, 3D scans. So um, 3D scans of animals. So we're using both LIDAR and then the photogrammetry I mentioned before. So the photogrammetry where we go around the animal and take a bunch of pictures. So that's where the multiple drones would potentially come in handy. It's we're trying to do some weight estimation, volume estimations in field uh, is, is using photogrammetry. And so our, our original goal is we, we, and we're actually able to get with probably within you know about 5% a consistent, a fairly consistent body weight. So we've been using the KCA bull Brutus to do a lot of this uh, estimation. So this is work done by Michael Salmon, Felipe, his graduate student. Uh, so we, we've done with the drones, we've done it on the ground with cameras, but we'll fly at different radiuses and heights. And we kind of determine what was the optimum point for creating those 3D images. 
And then similarly, we've done it with uh, LIDAR, so it stands for, we've all heard of radar and sonar. So LIDAR is just light detection and ranging. And so using that to also scan the an animal with about, um, I believe it takes 17 different channels of lasers. And each one, they're all, what was it? I think they all combine to form about 320,000 points a second is what they scan. And so then taking that information and we got the, the model calf. So we had Brutus the, from a Casey and another calf on a, a lazy Susan. We're able to rotate those around the lazy Susan and pretty much scan them, scan them, put a feed into the computer and then create a 3D model for uh, cool. the calves. That's pretty cool. So do you think you'll um, eventually be able to estimate weights and, and that with the, something like that? We're really hoping we can estimate weights. And so that's something we got to uh, put in a grant for trying to see if we can get a lot more data and get a lot more animals. Uh, I think we, we looked at about 17 animals uh, previous to this. And so seeing what it takes and what's our minimum number, what's the minimum it takes to get the most resolution. And so we, we I told them, you know, at some point, you know, when the animals are moving in real life, when we're doing the photogrammetry, I was like, that's okay. I was like, we're not concerned about the legs. We're not, you know, we're just concerned about that that the main body mass. Right. And I was like, sometimes the head will move. But I was like, if we can even clip off the head from our rendered image, I was like, we're really just concerned about that. As long as that body mass, if we're able to estimate that, that's our primary concern. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty cool. You think there's the potential too, then to eventually maybe even use them for um, uh, early sickness detection? If they, if, could you get a heat sensor type? Uh, heat map on them or something that they're running a little higher on the core body temperature i think i think so we could definitely get uh, some of that and we're you know the hair you know gives us a little it presents challenges but a lot of it we just look at the eyes so the, you look at the eyes for what's their actual temperature the eyes and the ears will tell you probably uh more than any other part of the body would and, and really you know we've been hesitant thus far that's this is the one area we've been hesitant on thus far is when they're calving like sometimes when they're calving, I'll fly extra high just to make sure. I don't want them to, if there's black vultures, I want them to go ahead and try to protect them. I don't want them to get too acclimated to these. And I know that the sounds will be different. The sounds will be different, but I don't want them to be too acclimated to things flying around them during that calf. So I want them to do to activate their inherent ability to protect their calf. Yeah, so I'm not gonna, I'm not going to disrupt that. So that's that's been one thing I. Haven't done. I would like to fly more around calves. We haven't done a lot just because I want them to protect them. Sure. Yep, that makes good uh, sense. That's that's been one area we we just haven't explored. But you know, I I would really like to be out there as they're calving. You know, just fly and say, okay, we got this one calving here. And you know, that that'd be the other thing. There is an app out there called Cattle. They actually have an app called Cattle Counter. It's not. I haven't used. I've tried to use it. It hasn't been functional. But the goal is, you fly the field. It takes pictures as you're flying. And then it'll go back and calculate how many animals, quote unquote, it saw. But the oh. challenge there is uh, when you got black Angus, a cow standing up, and the shadow on the ground look very similar. So that that's the challenge. And that's the challenge for us even is just figuring out, you know, the the Angus cattle are just the most challenging from a facial recognition standpoint, the identification re standpoint. There's just a lot of little things that you have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. You don't think about those things. You think it's pretty easy until you actually start working in it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything's easy until you start, you know, it's easy in your mind, easy on a piece of paper, then you go out there and try practically do it, and it's uh, not the case. You know, any, yeah. any, anytime you do research or in anything, it seems like. Yeah, reality sets in, and then it's like, oh, man, didn't even think about that. Yep, open a can of worms here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Josh, this has been great and um, it, it definitely kind of refreshing to, to see your approach and the, the way you think about solutions to some of our normal tasks that we try to accomplish on the farm. And uh, we appreciate your your approach to making making life a little bit easier and get accomplishing these tasks. So um, listeners, uh, Josh, Josh opened the, the door for your can of worms, if you will. If you've got ideas, uh, feel free to reach out to him. You can find his contact information on University of Kentucky's website. Just look up Josh, Dr. Josh Jackson, and uh, I'm sure he'll uh, be happy to, to take some of your emails. Yep. I'm always looking for new ideas and, you know, I can't think of them all. So I need some help sometimes. And a little bit of funding to go with it would certainly be beneficial to you, right? Yeah. <laughs> that always helps. Money makes wheels go around. Oh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Josh, thanks again. Appreciate you joining us. All right. No problem. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics.